Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up this hour, my conversation with Roya Shariat and her mother, the very endearing Gita Sade. I talk with them about their new cookbook, Memon and Me, recipes from our Iranian-American family. And later in the show, learn about the cookies that are meaningful to some Connecticut residents, either because they're part of a holiday tradition or they hold a treasured memory. My first guests are the cookbook authors Roya Shariat and Gita Sade, the first of several mother-daughter culinary duos you're going to hear about this hour. Congratulations on your first cookbook, Roya and Gita. What a celebration of food and family this book is. I learned so much about Iranian food and traditions from reading it. Thank you so much. We're so excited to be on and talk about it. Thank you for having us. Yes. Roya, you write beautifully in the introduction about your motivations behind the book. You say it's a love letter to Iranian people and an act of keeping recipes alive. Talk more about how important it was to capture your mother's recipes the way you did. It feels like, to me, life or death. I think food is the way that so many first-generation and immigrant communities, that's our lifeline. We're in a new country. We're in a new land. We don't have a lot of extended family here. And food is the way of keeping those traditions alive, keeping those people who came before us alive, and keeping our culture alive. And I got to a point when I realized that if I don't preserve these recipes, I am going to lose this massive connection to my heritage, my history, and I'm going to lose a big part of myself. So for me, it felt necessary to capture these recipes as they are and as my mom has created them and innovated on them after immigrating to this country. Gita, you've become one of my heroes and not just because you're a teacher, You know, some people go online and they watch cat videos, but I go on TikTok and I watch you flip tadigs. No one flips a better tadig than you do. Can you explain what tadig is and how important it is to Iranian cuisine? Tadig is the bottom of the pot. Tah means bottom. Dig is the pot you are making your food, your rice. We are... uh, Peace-loving family, Iranian, the whole. But when it comes to Tadik, you will see fighting over that Tadik. Piece of Tadik, who gets the darker color, who gets the bigger piece. We have to be careful about that part. But for me, it's cooking really brings all of us together. And by the way you cook, you show your family, your friend, everybody, how much you love them, how much you support them, bringing the family, bringing the friend together. I feel like you're judged on, an Iranian cook is judged on how they make tadi. Would you (laughs) agree with that? Exactly. You could make any stew in the world or any dish in the world. That wouldn't matter if you can't make a good tadi without either burning it or maybe underdoing it. The last minute you flip the pot and show your masterpiece. Ta-da, it's coming. Tadik is coming. Yeah. Yeah, that's like the best part of any dinner party. And that's the moment everybody waits for, the moment of truth. (laughs) Yes, yes. Now, there is one other series of videos that's made Gita the Internet's favorite mom. And I can't resist this. Please explain the special talent that's captured the attention of millions. It was a shock to me that millions of people wanted to see it. But I certainly am so lucky to have the front row seat to this whenever I'm with my mom and my family. It's her ability to fit leftovers in the perfect size container every (laughs) It doesn't matter if we're talking about a massive pot of soup. It could be a stew. It could be leftover rice and some bits of tadik. People have used this term spatial awareness, and they call her the CEO of spatial awareness. (laughs) The way that her mind works was shocking to me. And I started making videos of this in early 2020, in the early days of the pandemic, 
just for myself to remember a special time I had with my family that I wasn't going to get back. And just because this skill always shocked me and surprised me and left me in awe. And after about a dozen or so of those videos, they started going viral one after another. And now without fail, any of those videos, people recognize her, they know her, they know this ability, they tune into the videos, they're shocked. And people say, I can't believe I didn't trust her. She shocks <laughs> me every time. I think of her every time I put away leftovers. But every time she mentions, my mom does it every time, then you could uh, see the comments, our mom, not your mom. <laughs> it makes my heart warm. I felt somehow giving people joy, enjoyment, uh, kind of make them busy, not thinking about unknown, not thinking about that bad thing happening. It's so satisfying as a person watching. We're almost like rooting for you, Gita, because sometimes it seems like there's no way you can fit one more slice of eggplant into the Tupperware. But even one teaspoon. <laughs> so it has happened. I will say, even sometimes you doubt yourself. And I record it anyway, and it always fits. Yeah, and then I'm you surprise yourself. I, didn't <laughs> I love it so much. So... What are some of your favorite examples in the book where you've taken a traditional Iranian dish and because of necessity or ingenuity, you've made it Iranian-American and it's part of your family's repertoire now? I think there are so many good examples of that, even in the breakfast section. As simple as adding a bit of cardamom to your French toast. It's a familiar flavor. Yeah, rose water, rose water, whipped cream familiar treats but just a taste of home in it and that is so simple there are other things like the chips and yogurt dip mm -hmm. and in iran you might have musto musir which would be with like a wild shallot that is harder to come by in the states instead we take whatever yogurt we can find some mayo or sour cream italian seasoning salt and pepper and we turned this old school afternoon snack into a new school version of it ourselves the wonton wrappers for samosa mm -hmm. is just like one of my favorite examples of that. If she was just like, how yeah. do I do this without making the dough from scratch? Obviously, I'm not going to find samosa wrappers. But most grocery stores have both wonton wrappers and egg roll wrappers. Yeah. We've tried both. Yeah. We kind of soup, we make it, we call it ash. Mm. And we use, mostly use, uh, we call it cash, but it's kind of whey protein. Mm -hmm. Beginning when we came to United States almost 40 years ago, no grocery store, no internet, no iPhone, nothing. I needed to have that thing. It was a special part. I needed to have it. So I tried sour cream. It has the color and the taste was fantastic. I said, oh, I can use that in Kashke Bodem June too. It's not only ash. And I practiced, tried it, and less of that, more of that. And it became so good. And we were happy. We were satisfied using that. The other thing I'll add is sometimes there's American ingredients used in unexpected ways or more Iranian ingredients used in unexpected ways. So saffron salmon with ranch yes. dressing. How the heck did this lady come up with that? I don't know, but it works and it's so it's, good. It's so good. Yeah. And then we have the labne toast. And it's instead of using your cream cheese, you use labne in a way that is really straightforward and simple, but is so delicious with ingredients you can find everywhere else beyond that. The salmon and the ranch is a good example. And this happens throughout the book. There are all these little surprises throughout where there are flavor combinations that maybe, you know, I hadn't thought of putting together. Like, I love figs. I love fig jam. You have a fig and peanut butter <laughs> situation happening where I was like, why haven't I ever tried that before? And and also your citrus and almonds was an improvisation. Talk about that. That is such a simple dish. And it, I think we got into, I wouldn't say an argument, but there was a disagreement <laughs> about whether or not you include that in the cookbook because for my mom, that's like, that's so basic. Of course, you know, yeah, of course I'm going to do yeah. that. That's too simple. And for me, I'm like, just the simple act of sprinkling some lime juice zest on some nuts that are roasting in the oven. You have no idea, one, what that tastes like for someone who's never had it. Or two, the concept of that being so simple yet so impactful, that sort of thing is amazing. The fig toast, 
came from my mom talking about figs, figs and persimmons especially. She always talks about them as if you're eating ripe jam. Well, if the fruit tastes so jammy, why don't you just treat it like jam? And we're lucky enough, they have two fig trees in their backyard. And my dog is even named Fig because we <laughs> yeah. love that fruit so much. <laughs> it was a standout in the cookbook. I love it. I want to ask you about a couple of your traditional cookies. But before we get to that, let's say I have access to a well-stocked Southwest Asian market. What are the ingredients you absolutely want to be sure I put in my basket so I can really appreciate Iranian flavors when I cook from your book? First, rose water, cardamom, cardamom pot. And if you can make those to a powder, it smells so good. If not, they have cardamom powder too. These are the basic ingredients for dessert. You need this too. Or rose petals. You can find it everywhere. You can crush it. You can use it. The whole thing for just garnishing. These are the basic. I have to have rose water. And then what yeah. about for just stews and cooking and everything else? You have your spices down. Yeah. I have uh, turmeric. Yeah, always. Always. Turmeric, cinnamon, cumin. Cumin. Curry powder curry is powder. a mix yes. of yeah. turmeric and cumin and other things, but it's that mix and the balance of it that rounds yeah. out dishes yeah. really nicely. So you'll be surprised to see that in addition to turmeric and cumin, yeah. there's yeah. always like half a teaspoon yeah. of curry powder in there. And then but, uh, with curry powder, be careful. Last time I got it. Spicy I, one? I got the spicy <laughs> one and I, we had our rice. I said, what happened? I said, <laughs> You got the spicy one. <laughs> I usually don't read the label. I just grab that one. Be careful. If, if you cannot have a spicy food, yeah. just make sure. And I think last but not least would be saffron. Saffron. Mm. Which is yeah. the, the queen of all spices, yeah. one of the yeah. most expensive and laborious, intensive to source it yeah. and pick it. Yeah. I think yeah. saffron. saffron, we treat it like gold. We use it. It is. It, it is. is yes. Yeah. yeah. Every time I go back home. I bring some and I just look at it. I could have a couple of drinks. Worth its weight in gold. Saffron, yeah. And that actually, that's the pairing too that's surprising in your salmon dish. It's not that this it's the salmon and the ranch. It's the saffron and the ranch. You're going high and low there with the ingredients. <laughs> just a little high low. <laughs> I feel like that's really special and used throughout the book. And then the other basics beyond just spices, I'd say good bread, flatbread, lavash, yeah. thick yogurt or labne, and then a lot of fresh herbs, whether you can find parsley and cilantro, spring onions, mint, radishes. Those are sometimes just the garnish on the side of the thing, or they're incorporated throughout the dish, and they're at every yeah. meal we eat. Yeah. I'm really interested in the cookies that pop up in people's cultures. Can I ask you to tell me the significance behind some of the cookies in Maman and Me? Can we start with your cookies for Iranian New Year? Yeah, and we yeah. didn't even put all of those ones yeah. in. So yeah. there's a selection, but we have the tut, and then I believe we have nuntok morgi. So tut are these almond flour sweet cookies, very soft, very easy, no bake. Tokmori are egg yolk and walnut crispy crunchy cookies. Talk about yeah. how you learned to make those and where they come from. Growing up, my grandma would make it and mom sitting, all my aunts sitting and helping. And it was kind of shame for them to buy cookies from bakery. Mm. They have to make it. They have to grind rice flour. They didn't have sugar powder in uh, stores. They have to make sugar powder with two stone on top of each other with a wooden handle. Someone has to grind that for them. Then uh, they have to put it through clean socks, those nylon socks, wow. uh, mesh, something. So there is no lump. So sitting there helping them, I was always interested. I got the love of cooking, especially baking. And some of the cookies you see here, it was in our family. Mm -hmm. So it came from my ancestor, my grandparents. They're handwritten yeah. in a cookbook, in yeah. a wrinkly old yeah. cookbook. The ingredient they were using, the metric system is kilo in Iran. Three kilos, imagine 2.2. <laughs> 
eight nine pounds of flour. <laughs> then bring it down to a smaller version. It was hard. You had to nice. bring it down yeah. to a smaller version, which was still two pounds of flour. And then I had to make her take it down even further. Yeah. yeah. The hardest part was that. <laughs> yeah. Just practicing and doing it all over again. It's for me to keep the tradition, to keep yeah. the culture alive. I want to have it after me. So Roya is trying to pass it on to next generation. And this is for me. Every time she talks about the baking, food in general, but especially the baking and the cookies, I feel like I learned something new. So that sugar anecdote, grinding sugar and putting it through yeah. pantyhose, never heard that until yeah, now. Yeah. Remember, yeah, you yeah. said in, we didn't have parchment paper, so yeah. we used old newspapers. Old newspaper, <laughs> egg cookies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yes. We have to be careful just... Somehow take it, it out. <laughs> no, nothing written. <laughs> yeah. For your crispy egg yolk cookies with walnut, people, if they're trying to think about what that might be, they should think of a meringue almost. The recipe in the book makes 20, but your great-grandmother and your ancestors would make hundreds of these. And so that's what you were talking about with like all of the that flour having to be be sort of scaled down for... A modern and recipe you'd make today. They didn't have electric mixer. Yeah. Wow. They had to just whip the egg yolk with hand. Yeah. And I love that the, the no-bake cookies, the soft almond flour cookies, I learned that toots is the word for mulberries. And it's not that they're mulberry flavored, but they're they're oblong shaped like mulberries. I think that's so sweet. And they're really beautiful in the book, these wonderful pastel colors. And that is one of your cookies flavored with rose water. So if people have rose water and they're trying to think about, whoa, what am I going to use this? And I bought it special for one recipe. Try these cookies. I'd say those are great. And I'd say there's a few options with rose water here in terms of recipes, but then start branching out. If you're going to make a pound cake or a loaf or a cupcake, think about adding a teaspoon of rose water to your frosting or to your baked good. It's better, honestly, I feel like in frostings and glazes and finishes because the flavor can sometimes dissipate when you bake. You have to be a bit more generous when you're heating it up Ah. versus when you're eating it as is. But the long hope is that, you know, someone may try this toot recipe and that inspires them to put a little bit of rose water in their next cupcake recipe or in their next uh, Or even your lemonade. I buy lemonade big jar from Costco. (laughs) Then it just... Couple of drop, couple of teaspoon of rose water. Oh, you made that? I said, yeah, I made it. But it was pre-made. I <laughs> added just rose water. Honest, the taste is totally different. I love it. And I do that too, Gita. So no, there's no shame in a huge <laughs> yeah, Costco yeah. run. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing that stood out to me about your sweet yogurt fritters, these little half-moon looking cookies covered with confectioner's sugar. You say that it's perfect to have with tea. And so I wondered if maybe you would talk about the importance of tea in your cultural cuisine. Tea is the center of every gathering, almost like the herbs are at the table in every meal, or you can expect tadig at every dinner party. Tea is there morning through night. And it's kind of for us being hospitable. The guests coming asking, would you like some tea? And they say, no, thank you. I say, this is a special tea. Then I'm asking, would you like hot tea after two, three minutes? No, thank you. But I have good cookies. You can have your hot tea with cookies. I have cake. Then after a couple of times, I think the guests would give up. say, bring your tea. They have the first one, they would ask, can I have the second one and third one? We don't use tea back. I have some kettle, boiling water, then I put a smaller kettle. It has to be porcelain, no metal. The tea steeps there, then just a little bit of that tea, then adding the boiling water to it. It's kind of ritual when you taste the tea. You are going to be in love with that tea. I feel like sometimes we'll be somewhere eating a sweet and she goes, I really need some chai. I really need some tea with this. I can't enjoy it without tea. It needs to be there. And I remember once I was probably a teenager, there was a wild power outage in the D.C. area in the middle of the summer, leaving us without power for many days. 
And at some point, <laughs> my parents bought a small generator to power just a few basic things because we were really struggling in this heat. The first thing my dad did and at my mom's request was plug in an electric kettle and make sure it working. We were without air conditioning. We were sweating. We were miserable. And if this tea thing did not work, it was over. The generator was going back. We would stay without power. I think it is our lifeblood. It is yeah. It is in our veins. And it was first thing and last thing. Well, one thing you mentioned, Gita, is that if you had company and you offered your guest tea and they would say, oh, no, no, thank you. I would never refuse tea if you offered it to me because I I find you irresistible. Also, like, I just know you can make a cup of tea, so. Guests refusing, there's a concept called taruf, essentially ritual politeness. You would never say yes on the first offer because you don't want to seem too greedy or too eager. You do this back and forth, regardless of whether or not you want the thing, like at least three times. And then you finally say yes, and they finally serve yeah. you. So yeah. that's... That's oh, that something the word taro. We wow. have to find some way to put it in the dictionary. dictionary. Tadik is there. <laughs> Tadik is there. But taro, no one has the... There's no word. No word for that. And it's kind of for us, never if I come to your house, you ask me about you want hot tea or coffee. No, thank you. I'm okay. Two times. I hope you continue <laughs> asking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm so sure it, I probably seem too eager because I want to be like, yes, 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 I'll take it all. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you're an easy, you're an easy guest for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, a minute ago you talked about words. I loved the way that you talked about the importance of language. Also in the book, one thing that that I absolutely internalized and will remember this always is that in your culture, the word for heart and stomach are one and the same. And so I wonder, would you talk about that for me? It's funny. If you miss somebody, you say, my del, my heart slash stomach has become tight, has become warped for you. Del tangi is the longing, the missing of someone. Again, yeah. still is warping this. You could say... Delam misuse. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah. So del heart slash stomach, but suze means burn. And that's when you... So sad feeling for you. Yeah, when yeah. you're really feeling a deep sense of empathy for someone. My heart is burning for you. My stomach yeah. is burning for you. But I feel like there's no more succinct way to show how important food, love, and life are connected in our culture other than that word. The fact that the word for your heart and your stomach are one and the same. You can call a loved one, delam, my stomach, my yeah. heart. Even jigara, my liver, is another term of endearment. <laughs> <laughs> or for a small child or animal, you could say, jigara to I could eat yes. your liver. Yes. So strange. Yeah, it is so strange. But it's, I want to just smell you. I want to hug you. I want to just talk to you. It shows that how much you love someone. Food, love, and life, they are just so connected yeah. in our culture. And I really hope that comes through in this cookbook. Oh, it absolutely does. I'm, I'm so grateful for your work on it. And thank you for talking with me about your book, sharing your family's recipes and your culture with us. People who get to eat at your table or are sent home with uh, your leftovers and some Tupperware are very, very lucky people. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hopefully next time we'll be in person and we'll feed you something or yeah. make some tea and cookies. Yeah. And I will remember to say no the first time you ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was Roya Shariat and Gita Sade. Their book is Memon and Me. You can find three of Roya and Gita's holiday cookies on our show page and at ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. It's time for a short break. When we get back, you'll hear from folks about the cookies that have special meaning to them. It's just always been sort of a part of me, and making it with my mom and making it with my sister-in-law and my grandmother when she was around. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Lots of you are baking cookies this week. For some of you, those cookies aren't just delicious. They have connections to your culture and culinary heritage. We're spending the second half of the show hearing about cookies that have special meaning to their bakers. My name is Joyce Thompson Biolzi. My name is Janice Papaga. The special cookie that we here should talk about today are krumkaka, which comes from Norway. My parents came over here, I guess, when my mother was about eight years old. That's when the tradition started at Christmas time. They would make special cookies. The cookie looks like an ice cream cone that some people do put different things in it, but most of the people just eat it as a cone. The dough for the crumb cocker are pretty much like a butter cookie. There is a lot of butter in it, eggs and sugar, flour, of course, and it has cardamom. The crumb cocker cookie was probably the most popular cookie because it had such a unique taste. It was just this thin cookie and it flaked and it just had such a nice taste to it. You pretty much make the dough up like you would any cookie. I like to make it ahead of time. The dough has to be chilled. And just a certain amount, a certain way, because if it's too little, it doesn't work right. And if it is too much, it doesn't work right. The idea is to have everyone ready when the dough is ready. And we have an iron that we have to use in order to make it. It's similar to um, a waffle iron, only it's flat. To put the dough on the iron, I use two teaspoons. And I try and place the dough at a certain spot on the iron so it doesn't come out the sides or out the front. It'll stay where it is and just go round to the shape that it's supposed to be. When you put the top down, there's a lid that you put down and, and hold it tight so that the cookie itself becomes very thin. If it's too thick, then it's not right either. And if it's too thin, it's not right. So there are a few different things that you have to learn by trial and error. As you get older, it gets better, and then it starts to get worse again. (laughs) You have to cook both sides of the cookie, and while it's very hot, you take it and wrap it around a wooden form to shape it into the shape of a cone, and then you would Put it aside until it cools off, and you can store them by putting one inside the other. This is much better if you have a helper. And as I was growing up, when I reached a certain age, my mother taught me how to do it, and I did it with her. And then when my daughter was born and she got old enough, I used her, and we sat and did it together. It was just always fun around the holidays, spending time with my mom, and sometimes my grandmother would be here. Early on when we had the original crumb cocker maker, it was just, it felt so old school and fun and kind of brought us back to like our roots. Um, The old school iron was cast iron, and it would sit on the coils of our old stove. The old school iron that we used was 
one cookie at a time, and you had to do it on the stove, and there were times when it ran over the side and a flame would come up, and especially me would get concerned that we were going to have a fire, but it never happened. It was very heavy as well. The original cone that I had to make the cookies with, the form was made by my grandfather. It almost looks like a dunce cap, a long, skinny, shaped wooden form that was probably chiseled and filed out of wood. You can hold it in one hand and manipulate the cookie dough with the other hand as you're turning it. It takes getting used to, especially for the younger children, but my daughter and I and daughter-in-law work well together, and we get it done in like one-third the time. You have to move very quickly and get it into that cone shape, or the cookie gets ruined, and you have to remember that when that cookie comes off the iron, it's very, very hot, and it could burn your, your fingers. Mine are old and tough, so it doesn't bother them as much. So the tighter you get it around the cone roller, then the, the more you can get in the tin, and they fit better. But I tend to burn my fingers and my hand. Sometimes they don't always look that great or fit together, but it's fun to do. It still tastes good. Even though they may be broken, it's hard to keep people from standing eating the crumbs as we break them. Everyone loves these cookies, but no one ever made them at any other time than Christmas. I think I'm about to change that. I want to make sure I get my share of cookies before I leave this wonderful world. <laughs> Making the Christmas cookies a crumb cocker it's probably the thing that most connects me to my Norwegian heritage because it's just something that we've always done and I heard my mom talk about doing it with her mom and her grandmother when she was growing up. So then it makes me feel good knowing that I'm making something that the family grew up making and that they make over in Norway. It's just always been sort of a part of me it always has made me feel good in making it with my mom and making it with my sister-in-law and my grandmother when she was around. So it's just that connection, and there's not a lot of things these days connecting us. Listeners, stop what you're doing right now and go to our webpage to see photos of Joyce and Janice and their old-school and new-school Kaka irons. Each iron has a beautiful Scandinavian pattern that gets imprinted on the delicate cookies as they bake. There's also photos of the cookies themselves and the wooden cone rollers used to shape them. Now, let's hear about more cookies. Hi, my name is Layla Jenkins, and I'm the owner of Lorca Coffee Bar in Stamford, Connecticut. Our most famous cookie and most popular is called the Alpha Whore. So the Alpha Horror is actually a shortbread cookie that's made from cornstarch, and it's a sandwich cookie that's filled with dulce de leche and then rolled in coconut and covered in powdered sugar. It was brought to Spain by the Moors a long, long time ago. And since I grew up in Spain, it's a cookie that I grew up eating with my mom and that she baked all the time. When the Spaniards ended up going to Argentina, Uruguay, it transformed from being a cookie that was mostly dried fruit and almonds and local nuts to being a shortbread cookie with dulce de leche and coconut, which is the iteration that we use today at Lorca Coffee Bar. So one of my mom's dreams was to open her own restaurant. So when I first opened the cafe, she would always bring in treats for all of our customers to try and there were a few massive hits, and one of them was the Alpha Horror. It's got this texture that is starts off a little crispy on the outside, and then it just kind of melts in your mouth. And it has a great flavor combination, a little salty, very sweet, and just great texture. So my favorite thing when I give somebody an Alpha Horror for the first time is to watch them enjoy it, which sounds a little bit strange, but I really love seeing people enjoy our food. 
a beautiful thing about this cookie is that it's super versatile. You can put Nutella in the middle, you can dip it in chocolate, roll it in sprinkles if you have little kids, roll it in almonds like the original, and really, really do anything that you want with it. And it's kind of complicated to bake, but I spent a lot of time baking it with my mom and passing the recipe along to our bakers, which has transformed them. And, you know, I'm very specific about the thickness and all of that fun stuff. Every time I'm at the cafe, I always make them myself because it's one of my favorite things to make. It's one of those cookies that sells out literally every single day at the shop. Honestly, I think we could survive off of just coffee and alfajores because they're so popular. (laughs) My name is Lori Dalton. I am here in my kitchen and we're going to make my mom's favorite Anisette cookies. Anisette cookie is a cookie that has the spice or the um, extract of anise, um, which there are many variations and this type of cookie. But I just make my mom's traditional cookie. They are different tastes than most cookies because they do have that anise licorice kind of taste to it. So you have to enjoy that kind of flavor. They're soft. Sometimes they're on the little on the dry side, but that's what makes them really good with like a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Delicious. And then when you put the little frosting on it, it gives them that, that sweetness of it because it's not a very sweet cookie. It reminds me of my mom and baking together and a lot of good memories there. And I like to share with my kids. Italian families like to cook together and bake together. And that's always been a holiday thing. I'm Ramin Ganeshram, chef, journalist, culinary historian, and executive director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture in Westport, Connecticut. The holiday cookie that I find most compelling is gingerbread, because within this simple cookie is an encyclopedia of world history and my own personal heritage. The first gingerbreads were produced in monasteries in the Middle Ages using spices like clove, nutmeg, cinnamon, and of course ginger, just like today. Those spices got to Europe via the silk trading routes from the eastern lands from which I'm partially descended. Later, when Europeans developed the Atlantic trade in the Western Hemisphere, molasses became a key part of gingerbread in North America, where it replaced honey and sugar as a flavoring. Molasses came from sugarcane production by enslaved Africans, as well as indentured Chinese and East Indians. This speaks to my Caribbean heritage. In cultural history, the Tudor Queen, Elizabeth of England, allegedly had gingerbread figures baked and decorated in the 1500s. These were the original gingerbread men. The first American cookbook published in 1796 by Amelia Simmons had seven gingerbread recipes. In the 1800s, Amherst poet Emily Dickinson was known in her community as a baker during her lifetime, not actually as a poet. Neighborhood kids loved the gingerbread she lowered down from her window in a basket. For my own part, I love baking and decorating gingerbread cookies during the holidays and then eating them with sharp cheddar cheese, just like my father used to do on a hard roll when he was a child growing up in Trinidad. Gingerbread and cheddar are a perfect combination for a holiday charcuterie board. If you haven't tried this, you should. I'll bet you'll be hooked. Hi, I'm Noah Behrman, and for me, chocolate chip cookies have always been the utopian ideal of a sweet thing. Pretty straightforward. Sometimes I'll add some walnuts, a little extra vanilla, wheat germ, a little raw oats. But my fondest memory of chocolate chip cookies is a bit of a sheepish one. It was 30 years ago and my first attempt at baking any kind of cookie, I think, outside of home ec class in junior high school. I had the next day lined up my first recording session as a jazz musician of my own compositions with other musicians. And I wanted to feed cookies to all the musicians, but I was a pretty new baker and I added instead of a stick of butter, a pound of butter. And the whole thing just oozed all over the bottom of the stove. It was a big mess, certainly had no edible cookies to deliver. But I still believe in chocolate chip cookies, and I still believe in keeping my musicians nourished, both in the soul and in the belly. That's one of Noah's compositions you're hearing right now. It's called Minor Miracle. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. After a short break, more cookies that nourish the soul and tie us to people we love. Cookies can do that, you know. So for me, making my mood, it is remind me with my mom and with my family. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. We're hearing the stories behind beloved cookies this hour. Our next cookies come from the chefs and bakers of a bustling, joy-filled place. Sanctuary Kitchen provides employment, culinary programs, and community to immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers in the greater New Haven area. My name is Parveen Turawa. I'm from the island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. My special cookie is my mother's cookie. My mother was very famous for nankatai. We call it the Indian shortbread. People used to come, like when there's a wedding or a special occasion, call her and say, can you make that for me? Because everybody loves cookies. So basically, when you say my mom's name, they used to say equal nankatai. <laughs> That's how famous she was with this cookie. The shape of the cookie is round, and it has the design of the tic-tac-toe on top, just to make it spread out when you cook it in the oven. The spice in it is uh, nutmeg. It's kind of sandy. It's not very sweet, and you can eat it with tea in the afternoon. It's really good any time of the day or, or night, whatever you want to do it. In the cookie, there's also flour, sugar, ghee, and uh, the nutmeg, and the almond. That's her recipe. But now I kind of divert from it. Instead of almond, I'm putting cashews and uh, cardamom instead of the nutmeg because I found that people like it a little bit better. So, sorry, Mom, but that's what I'm doing. (laughs) The special memory I have is the Eid which is a special uh, day, the festival of Ramadan, you know, the end of Ramadan. Either do it the day before, all of us together in the kitchen, and the smell of the kitchen was amazing. And then the the company of my mother, that's the best, I think. I really treasure that memory now, yeah. I love to make this cookie, and uh, I mean, I don't know anybody who said, oh, I don't like this cookie. Everybody loves it. And I'm very passionate about cooking, and I really like to share my my culture, and especially this cookie, to everybody. So I say, come, let's eat. (laughs) This is my mom's favorite. (laughs) Yep. My name is Ashar Ahmed. I am from Sudan. My special cookie is Kag Josenhin. The name Kag Josenhin, it comes from the uh, Arabic word. The Kag, it means cookies. Josenhin, it means coconut. All of the people in Sudan, they make it, especially like in their holidays, they eat or Christmas or if there is wedding, any special like event, we use those cookies. They cook Josephine, it look like, some people, they, they say it look like the Mexican wedding cookies. It's kind of shortbread. I make it with the flour, coconut, coconut powder, yogurt, sugar, powdered sugar. I love it because it. Rem- I think this is the first I learned when I was 10 years. Like, I love to bake. My dad used to have a bakery and in Sudan, like, during the holidays. At that time, there is, the people don't have uh, oven at home. They use my dad's uh, bakery. I really enjoyed that time because many people come from, like, sometimes from far away. They make it already at their home and just come and use the... Uh, the oven, and sometimes we get like opportunity to try some. Each one like try to make beautiful, like especially like for the holidays. And I said, oh, I, I want to do that. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Funny story I want to tell about the cargos and it. Because I'm the one who's in charge with the cookies like during the holidays. Uh, I remember one day I made a lot of cookies because I have six browsers. When I made it, I worked very hard to make these. In the morning, before even everyone, before they went to prayer, and I made many different of cookies. When I wake in the morning, my brother just they brought the whole uh, packet. They start like with the tea. They finish it all in one time. Yeah, I cried. And I cried a lot, and I took the rest. I went to the, my grandma's house. Like, Can you keep this one when I, when we have visitor? I just yeah. <laughs> My name is Rawa Ghazi. I came from Iraq. My really special cookie is ma'amul. It is mean a lot for us because before we was making ma'amul just in holiday. So it is remind me with my culture, my mom, and our like special days. 
So the ma'amul for me is something really special. So we really like to make a ma'amul as a beautiful shapes. Plus the flavor for ma'amul is really beautiful because we add spice, it's called mahlab. We add it with the dough. So the mahlab is really like, it is came from cherubit. So it is uh, something unique. And we use the really uh, good kind of uh, ghee. So the flavor for the ghee and the smell for the mahlab make a really good combination together. And uh, the ma'amulis came with a lot of stuffing. So we stuff it with date. We stuff it with the walnut and with pistachio. With date, we mix the date with ghee and cinnamon and cardamom. So it is gave a really beautiful flavor and smell. And if we want to do pistachio ma'amul, we put uh, rose water, also ghee. So it's make the pistachio like more strong flavor for that. So it is like really make it delicious. So we prepare the dough. It is like really uh, come as a soft dough. So we make a bowl and then we try to make a hole inside the bowl. And then we put the stuffing inside. And then we close the, uh, the bowl, we bring the nice shape mold, and we make like a stamp, so we make a shape. There is no cookie here in US like similar to the flavor for Ma'amul, <laughs> because of the mahlab and all the spice, we mix it with the stuffing, it's make it really special. Yeah, I really like Ma'amul. <laughs> the specific time we make Ma'amul in my country, when we finish Ramadan, which is the month we are, as a Muslim, we fast in this month. So in the last day, we are preparing to make a ma'amul for the holiday after Ramadan. So we all, me and my mom, making my mom, she preparing the dough. And on the night, we are sitting around the table and we put a nice music and we, we are happy that we finished this month. It is also special because when you see the ma'amul, it is baking, the smell for the ma'amul, it is give you like memorize about your family. And so I feel the food, it is not just like something we eat it. Each dish, there's a story behind the dish. And always when you make it, it is like remind you with the story. So for me making ma'amul, it is remind me with my mom and with my family and the day we was making over there. So I really like it. I feel happy when they do ma'amul also. I really just like to smell it, you know? Those were chefs and bakers at Sanctuary Kitchen in New Haven. They cater parties, by the way. You can pick up a big tray of cookies or other desserts there and look for tasty things from Sanctuary Kitchen at the City Seed Farmers Markets and area markets too. I bought a package of sesame cookies at Time and Season in Hamden last week. They were so good. Let's end with a familiar voice. This is Tegan Engel. I am a chef, food justice organizer, and producer with Connecticut Public Radio and Seasoned. I have two really special cookies. One is rugula, which is a cookie that is special to me as a Jewish person. It is a cookie that I think originates in Eastern Europe and is cooked by a lot of Jewish folks. It is a crescent-shaped cookie that has cream cheese in the dough. It's not very sweet dough. You roll it out into a circle and then cover it with jam and sprinkle it with some chopped nuts and a little cinnamon sugar and then cut it into wedges and roll it up and bake it till it's golden and chewy on the edges. The dough is a little flaky and it's just a perfect cookie. I love it so much. I grew up eating these cookies, but I got them from delis that used to be all over New Haven, all over New York, all over the place, and there's very few of them anymore. And I didn't grow up baking them at all. I first learned to bake this cookie when I was starting out as a chef and baker. I got a job, one of my first baking jobs in Brooklyn at a little bakery called Margaret Palka Bakes, which was in the ground floor of a brownstone in Carroll Gardens in 1995, was a Polish-American Jewish woman named Margaret Palka who made cookies that was sold at Dean and DeLuca and other fancy food stores. And that's where I first learned to make this cookie. The recipe that I use is still from that bakery. There's cream cheese in the dough, and then she adds powdered sugar to the dough. And some recipes have no sugar, some have granulated sugars. Hers has powdered sugar. And I think that that adds a little chewiness and wonderfulness to the texture of it. It is just one of the best cookies in the world. You can be from any cultural background and enjoy this. I make some of the dough. 
I put it in the freezer and then I can pull it out whenever I feel like making cookies just for fun or for a holiday or to give to friends. My other favorite cookie, I think is one of the best cookies in the world and it comes from one of the best bakeries in this country called Tartine, which is based out in the Mission District in San Francisco. And it is their soft gingerbread. It is a spicy, dark, just the right amount of sweetness, just the right amount of chew, wonderful gingerbread. But what's really special about this cookie is that you're supposed to use a patterned rolling pin to make a texture on top of the dough when you roll it out and then you glaze it and the glaze kind of pools in little indentations. The thing is, I do not own a patterned rolling pin. So every year I make these cookies for the holidays and I was looking around my kitchen thinking, what could I use to make the pattern on these cookies? And many years ago, when my kids were little, I headed over to the Lego box and I grabbed a whole bunch of different Legos, some circles, some with different kinds of textures and patterns. And I used the Legos to make a pattern across, indentation pattern across the cookie dough. Ever since then, I have been doing this every year and it's really fun. I have a set of Legos I keep in my kitchen, in my baking drawer. Sometimes I head to the Lego box to get some new new patterns and it just makes the cookies extra fun and special. I highly recommend this recipe. It is super delicious. Use Legos or whatever other fun things you can find in your kitchen or around your house. Whether it's rugula or gingerbread or anything else, I love keeping cookie dough in my freezer because it makes it really easy to pull out some dough and make cookies when friends come over or just when we want a special treat. And sometimes life is hard. Sometimes the world is really hard. And having cookie dough easy at hand to make a sweet treat just makes everything a little bit better and a little bit easier. Happy baking! That was seasoned producer Tegan Engel, of course. Go to our site to see photos of many of the cookies you heard about today, including the cookies from Sanctuary Kitchen and Tegan's Lego gingerbread cookies. Plus, I've linked up recipes from Memon and Me and Tegan's Rugala. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Tegan and Meg Dalton, Stephanie Stender, Catrice Claudio, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. If you need some recipe inspiration for the holidays, our dedicated food page includes Dory Greenspan's World Peace Cookies, Barks and Nogs, Beef Tenderloin, Pernil, and a gorgeous ham from Ina Garten that you might want to dig into. Spend some time clicking around ctpublic.org food. Thanks for listening and happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays.